Father, uh, today we're going to see a bunch of people, uh, uh, the vast majority of people in this world who are uh, bound and determined, Lord, that uh, they're not going to turn their necks, they're not going to listen to you, and they're going to go their ways. And Lord, uh, all the way to the end, they're going to be stiff-necked. And so, Lord, we, as we look at this, help each of us to examine our own hearts and our own lives. And, and Lord, if there's any areas in our lives where, where we're being stiff-necked, where we're bound and determined to do things our way and, and not do the things that you've called us to do, then show us that, Lord. Show us that today because we don't want to be uh, the kind of people who... Uh, perish because of our uh, evil ways and because of our uh, unwillingness to follow you and to follow your direction. And Lord, even as Christians, we can, we can miss out on the best part of, of life by, by being stubborn and unwilling to, to do your will. And so, Lord, I just ask today that uh, you use this text. It's a very difficult text, Lord, so I ask that you open everybody's ears and you open our hearts, open my uh, uh, speak these words, Lord. Uh, give us clarity in this text and um, help us to glean some application for, from it, uh, Lord, as, as we uh, go through uh, what has to be an important chapter, Lord, because it's one of the chapters in your word, and we know that all your word is important. So we ask you to bless this by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. Well, last week, we spent a lot of time establishing the fact that God is always speaking to mankind. There is never a time in history, there is never a time in our lives when God is not speaking. So the problem is never with God not speaking. The problem is with us not listening. And we uh, uh, live in a world of stiff-necked people who refuse to listen to the Lord. And the reason they don't listen to the Lord is that they want to do things their way. They want to go where they want to go, when they want to go. And they don't want to do the will of God. They want to be the captain of their own souls even if it means that they perish. And eventually, they will perish if that's their attitude. Listen to what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 19, 15. He said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring on this city and on all her towns all the doom that I pronounced against it. And, and now listen to this part. Because they have stiffened their necks that they might not hear my words. Did you get that? They have stiffened their necks that they might not hear my words. Now, we live in a nation of stiff-necked people, people who refuse to hear the word of the Lord. And eventually, doom is coming to this nation if people don't loosen up their necks and turn and listen to the Lord. It was interesting this past week, this past Friday, that the stock market dropped 
666 points. That number is kind of strange, isn't it? Uh, not really strange. It's the number of the beast. It's the number of man. And I don't think that the stock market is going to crash at, and like it did in the Great Depression or like it did in 2008. But all the time God is sending these little warnings and these little signals for us to get right with him and to listen to him so that we don't face doom. But we live in a nation of stiff-necked people, the evolutionists. The evolutionists can look at a strand of DNA and they talk about Christians checking their uh, intelligence at the door. They check, the, you, you have, they check their common sense at the door. If they look at a strand of DNA and can't see that there is some intelligent design behind that DNA, they're stiff-necked, and they won't listen to common sense. They shout down common sense. Then there's the atheist. The atheist who claims that this word is full of errors, and yet they won't even read the word because they're stiff-necked. And there are many so-called evangelical Christians who are stiff-necked about certain doctrines. There are a lot of people who call themselves evangelical Christians who are universalists. They believe that everybody's going to heaven and, and they deny the necessity of the cross. They deny the word that Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. And then there are those in the health wealth group the prosperity gospel group, they're stiff-necked. They refuse to even talk about the sin issue or they ignore the sin issue and they ignore the need of the blood for the propitiation of their sin. They don't want to hear about propitiation or sanctification. I've heard several of them say that. You don't want to bother Christians with terms like that. Well, they're, they're all in the Bible over and over again. But people who won't listen to that are stiff-necked. I was listening to Robbie Zacharias the other day, and Robbie Zacharias uh, was talking. I mentioned this to the Wednesday night group. He was talking about uh, a particular uh, one of the America's pastors, he's called, and he was talking about his first two books. In his first two books, which were New York bestsellers about how to be blessed by God, in, in the entire 500 pages of those two books, not one time is the blood of Christ mentioned. Not one time is the cross mentioned. And the reason people are buying into that because they are stiff-necked. They don't want to hear that they're sinners. They want to, don't want to hear that they're depraved, that their hearts are desperately wicked, that they're going to hell without the blood of Jesus Christ. They don't want to hear that. And as we're going to see today as we go through chapter 9 of Revelation, the very mass, the, the very vast majority of the population of this world are going to be stiff-necked to the very end, and they are going to be doomed. Again, enjoy your lunch today. Back to chapter 9. Let's go to verse number 1. Chapter 9. It's some difficult stuff, but it's here, so let's, let's get through it. Chapter 9, verse number 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, 
And I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him who was given the key, to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Now let's break this verse down a little bit. Some people believe that the star who's mentioned here is none other than Satan himself. And that he had fallen from heaven to earth and he was given the key to the bottomless pit. And if you see it as that way, it's almost as if you're putting Satan in control of what's going on here. Satan has no control over what's going over here. Who's orchestrating everything that's going on? You've got to go back to chapters 4, 5, and 6. Who's in charge of all of this? The Lamb of God. He's the one who's, who's giving these angels directions, and the angels are acting upon his direction. And these are the angels who stand before the throne of God. And so good grammar and good context tells us that this star who's fallen from or this this star that's fallen from heaven is not Satan, and the hymn there who was given the key to the bottomless pit is the fifth angel. That's just good grammar right there. The fifth angel was given the the key to the bottomless pit. So who's the star? Well, the star's not a who. You remember back in chapter number eight, there was a star like a mountain, and we see in verse ten that that fell to this earth. That's it. So what he's saying right here, he had seen the star fall, and then after the star falls, then the fifth angel is given the key to the bottomless pit. So that kind of, I said last week, you, you, you don't want to try to be dogmatic about putting these things in uh, chronological sequence. You'll get yourself in trouble. But it looks to me like maybe this star that falls and to, the, to the earth and destroys a third of the plants, a third of the trees, and a third of the ships, and a th- the third of the uh, sea is polluted, a third of the fish in the sea are all killed, that that star, it kind of looks to me like that star falls before the rest of these events take place. Now that could be a nuclear weapon. I was reading an article this past week where Russia has developed a torpedo. When their, their subs, by the way, are armed with this torpedo sitting off our coast, and one of these torpedoes is capable of wiping out all the cities on the east coast, and then another torpedo could wipe out all the cities on the west coast. So this could be a nuclear weapon. I don't think so. I think we're going to see the nuclear weapons in the latter part of chapter number 9. But more than likely, the star is a meteor, an asteroid that's fallen to heaven and to earth, and it does all of this great destruction. Now, I want to look for a minute at this bottomless pit. This is You talk about something scary or horrific here. What is this bottomless pit, and who dwells in this bottomless pit? Well, the Greek word for the bottomless pit is the abyssan, which we get we transliterate into our English word the abyss. And so it is the abyss. It's somewhere below the earth, and it has eternal depth. It goes on forever. Now, that's interesting. I remember when I was a young boy, my parents took us to the Carlsbad Caverns, and I remember taking an elevator deep down into those caverns, 
to a place called the bottomless pit. And I remember we were looking out over that bottomless pit, and, and you know, I was looking down in there, and, and then the ranger came, and he dropped a rock about the size of a baseball, and he drops this rock, and then he tells everybody, he, first of all, he tells us all to be quiet, and then he drops the rock, and the rock, rock falls, and you never have it, hear it hit. Well, I backed away from that pit, <laughs> got as far away as I could from that pit, up against the wall, and wanted to get out of there as quick as I could. Well, they say that that bottomless pit is not bottomless, that there is a bottom to that pit. But uh, there is a place below that bottomless pit at Carlsbad Caverns that is bottomless. Well, how can it be bottomless? I mean, if the earth has a diameter of about 8,000 miles, then how can it be bottomless? Well, let me tell you how it can be bottomless, because God can have it in another dimension that's eternal. That's one way. The other way, God can, as God expands this universe in an infinite way, he can also detract things or, or bring, make things smaller in an infinite way. So he can make it infinite in the sense that he makes us smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until it's nothing but space in there. God's not limited in any way. But think about this place. You talk about a horrible place. I mean, I, am, I have no doubt that the bottomless pit is part of Hades itself. And that when you die and you don't know Jesus Christ, you go to Hades. Now, there, Hades at one point had two compartments. It had a place of paradise and it had a place of the bottomless pit. Now, paradise has been emptied out. There is nothing but the bottomless pit. So if you do not know Jesus Christ, and I'm not trying to scare you into getting saved here today if you're not saved. Actually, I am. Because this is a horrifying place. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you go to Hades when you die. And what you do when you're in Hades, you await the time when Jesus, when the, when we, just before we go into the millennium, and you will appear before Christ. You will come out of the bottomless pit you will appear before Christ at the great white throne judgment seat. You will account for all your evil deeds, and then you will be cast into the lake of fire with the devil and the demons. And that's what we call hell, which is a different place, an eternal place. But this bottomless pit, we see it in Scripture in several places, and it is a very horrific place. First of all, we know that it's a place of utter darkness. You don't have to turn there, but in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, we're told that it's a place of utter darkness. Now, just like I had that horrible feeling when I looked down into that dark pit in Carlsbad Academy, could you be a, can you imagine dying and being cast into this bottomless pit that is totally dark? We also know that it's a place of total silence. From God, we, were we saw that last week. God does not speak to the people in the bottomless pit. It's also, we, we saw Wednesday night in Zechariah chapter 9, and you can go back and look at that later, but it's a waterless pit. There's no water. There's no water there, which leads me to the other characteristic about this pit or the other attribute of this pit. It is a place of heat and fire. You remember in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, 
And Lazarus looked across that gulf from Hades and he looked across that gulf to Lazarus and he begged Lazarus to come and wet his tongue with a drop of water because it was a waterless pit and it was a very hot pit and he was on fire and he was crying out for help. And so uh, it's a waterless pit. It's a soundless pit. It's a place of utter darkness. Uh, It's a place of fire. And maybe the worst part, it's the habitation of the worst of the demons, the very worst of the demons. Listen to what Peter says back to that verse I talked about earlier, 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 4. God did not spare the, the angels who sinned, but cast them down into Tartarus, which is the Greek uh, uh, title of Hades. And uh, he cast them down to Tartarus, or the abyss, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Just like the people who don't know the Lord are cast into this bottomless pit and they're reserved for the judgment at the great white throne uh, judgment seat. Now, this place is so bad that even the demons cringed at the thought of going there. You remember when Jesus cast out the legion of demons from that demon-possessed man and they begged him, please don't send us down to the bottomless pit. Please don't do that. And Jesus gave them a reprieve, and he put them into pigs, or allowed them to go into pigs, and the pigs drowned themselves in the water because they didn't want to be possessed by demons. It's amazing how pigs don't want to be possessed by demons, but many people do. So it's a terrible place, and... The scariest thing of all to me, it's the habitation of stiff-necked people. Those people who die to the, being stiff-necked to the end, refusing to obey, obey the Lord. Now, let's get to some more bad news. This is bad news not for me, though. This is bad news for the lost. And if it does anything for us, what... what it, what this should do for us when we see the horrors of these places where our relatives or friends are heading, if they don't get right with the Lord, it should cause us to do everything we can in our power through prayer and through witness to, to lead these people to the Lord. And now in verse number two, he opened the bottomless pit and smoke arose out of the pit like. Now, now I want you to stop for a minute and look at that word like. That tells us right away that we're dealing in symbolism. We're going to see the word like or as at least 15 times in this chapter. So it, it appears over and over and over again. So, so, we're, so what John is telling us by using that word like, he's telling us that this is what it looked like to him. And so we're looking at symbolism here to some degree. Now, I don't want to go too far with the symbolism because I believe that you always interpret the scripture literally first and then symbolically second. And then when you're into into symbolism, if you don't get the answer to to what that symbolism means, then you can't be dogmatic about what it means. A lot of people try to be dogmatic about what this means in chapter number 9, and I don't think anybody can be dogmatic about what it it means. When I can't be dogmatic, 
Nope, you can't be dogmatic, because I like being dogmatic. But I'm not going to be dogmatic here. I'm going to give you a picture of what I think is going on here. And uh, 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 you got to remember that what John was doing right here, he was describing things that were happening thousands of years after the first century, and everything had changed. Look at, could you imagine John being placed into Lafayette, Louisiana today? He would look around and he would see things that he was given a vision of just this city and this, this town. He would, he would, and he tried to describe these things. It would be very difficult for him to describe because he doesn't even know what a car is. He doesn't know what a tank is. And so he would say, man, that looks like a big, giant, you know, beetle running down the street. See a Volkswagen? You say, that looks like a, that's why they call them beetles. That looks like a big beetle. You know, and he would describe it as this awful-looking beetle that, that smoked at the rear, you know, or something like that. And so, so when we're looking at this, we've got to realize where he's coming from. He's trying to describe things he's never seen before, uh, using things that he has seen to describe it, okay? And so, anyway, he says, And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace so that the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. So the angel opens the pit. He lets out these demons. And then John describes what happens for us here. Those who interpret this text historically, I think they go way too far in their allegorical interpretation of this text. They say that, that the smoke that comes out of the pit uh, blocks the sun, the view of the sun, the S-O-N, and that, uh, the, uh, that it makes it hard for the people to breathe spiritually, you know. I, I really I think that's a big stretch. I think there's something going on here that relates to the Great Tribulation. This is not something that has happened historically. This is something that John sees. He's taken forward to the Great Tribulation, and he sees these events, and he, this, he describes them as best he can, he can as, as best he can can. Uh, what John is seeing here is what Jeremiah calls, calls the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation. And here are these demons who are chained and they're released in order to join Satan and the other demons on this earth uh, in this great, to, what they're going to do is initiate this great war on this earth that's going to destroy most of mankind. Now, I believe, this is my personal opinion, and, and I actually, it's more than a personal opinion, but I won't get into that. But I believe that a lot of our world leaders are possessed now. They're already possessed. When I hear someone I, screaming and I look in their eyes and I see people mesmerized by what they're saying, and I'm, wait, I'm almost waiting for the heads to spin around. I have a hunch. I'm not going to name any names, but I, I, I could almost name some people who I believe politically, I believe that they're demon-possessed. And I believe there are a lot of people in this world that are demon-possessed. I would like to share a vision that I had one time right after I got saved, but I'm not going to. But I, through that vision, I saw that there are a lot of people in this world a lot of leaders, a lot of people in important positions, a lot of people in trust, trustworthy positions that are demon-possessed. Well, you think it's bad today. 
Think of how bad it's going to be when the worst of the worst of these demons are released from the bottomless pit, not hell, from the bottomless pit. And they're allowed to go in and possess people throughout this world. And it's going to be much worse than it is today. I'm not going to be here. I'm not going to be here. And, and I don't want to be here. But you get to Revelation chapter 18, just before the destruction of the great Babylon, this great world system. And listen to what it says. It says, this world has become a dwelling place for demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. So it's a place where demons are in control, and they are intent on destroying mankind. They want, they're going to plunge this world into the greatest war we have ever seen. Now that's not some new strategy by Satan. Satan has if you go back and you study some of these evil empires and you study some of the men who led these evil empires and if you study, get deep into a study into their personal life, they were involved in the occult. The whole Nazi system in Germany was occultic. I mean, they found their power in an energy force they called virile. And they got that power by meditating on superior uh, spiritual beings from the underworld. They would meditate on them. And from those, those beings, they would get their power and they would get their direction. And one of the main directions that they got was to cleanse their nation of all impure classes so that they could become a nation of gods. They were told that they would become a nation of gods. And they had their Messiah. And who was their Messiah? He was none other than Adolf Hitler. And he took his orders from a higher spiritual power who told him that the prerequisite for them conquering the world was to kill all of the Jews. Does that sound like that comes from a normal person? It comes from the pit of hell. That Satan has been trying to destroy the Jews from the very beginning. He hates the Jews because they are God's people. And, and that's what bothers me so much about this replacement theology that's infiltrating our church today. It's permeating much of the church because it, it brings about hate of the Jews. And that is satanic. Look, God hasn't changed his mind. He said, I will bless those. He said this to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And he has not changed on that. That covenant that he made with Israel is an everlasting covenant. With the land, it's an everlasting covenant. And with the, the people, it's an everlasting covenant. And I can prove that if you want to, unless you want to be stiff-necked. I mean, I don't know how you can read Psalm 105 where it says, I'll give you this land forever. And, and, and believe in replacement theology. But people get stiff-necked. And they don't want to turn and listen to the Lord. You know, one of the beautiful things about getting saved where you haven't been involved in religion is you can start looking at this word objectively. And you don't, you don't come to it with preconceived theologies. You come to it and you develop a theology from just reading the word. And I challenge you, if you've been in a denomination that... Uh, has these preconceived theologies to get into the word for yourself and then let develop your own theology. 
I mean, I used to think I'm a Calvinist or I'm an Armenian or I'm a this or I'm a that. I don't do that anymore. I'm neither of those. I mean, I believe you can lose your, your salvation, but you can't lose it because God's not going to let you lose it. So I'm an Armenian and a Calvinist. And so I, I believe both those things are true, but you can't land on one side and be stiff-necked about that side and refuse to listen to what the rest of the Scripture has to say about that issue. Now, I believe what happened in, in Germany in World War II was a dress rehearsal. In fact, if I was living in that time and it was taking place now in my life, I would be certain that Hitler was the Antichrist. And I think many people were in that day because that's exactly what's going to happen in World War III or World War IV. Maybe we'll have another war before then. But in the Great Tribulation, that's what's going to happen and, we, and, and we're going to see this man, this man of sin, who this man of perdition, the Antichrist, who's going who's gonna to come in, he's going to be demon-possessed. In fact, he's not going to be demon-possessed. He's going to be possessed by Satan himself. And he's going to lead an army of men who are demon-possessed. And many of the people who follow him will be demon-possessed. And they will deceive the Jews. He will come riding in on a white horse, and they will deceive the Jews, but their purpose will be to destroy them. And not only destroy them, to destroy any inferior race, to destroy any inferior people, to instroy, especially to destroy any Christians who are on this earth, any great tribulation saints. But it won't be that bad at first. It's not gonna, I don't think it starts out as a nuclear war, and here's why I say that. I, I think maybe it starts out as a, as a chemical or a biological war because look at how it develops beginning in verse number 3. Look at what it says. It says, Then out of the smoke, out of the smoke locusts came up upon the earth, and to them was given power. Now, again, there's the word as. They, they, they're not scorpions. They're not giant bugs, but they were given power as scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, who are the men who, don't, who have the seal of God on their foreheads who won't be harmed during the Great Tribulation? Who are they? The 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Judah. 12,000 from 12 tribes of Judah. And they will not be harmed during the Great Tribulation. That's one of the things we know about them. We talked about that when we talked about the 144,000 a little while back. A lot of people, a lot of scholars, especially those prophecy scholars, believe that Psalms 90 through Psalms 100 is a prophetic picture of the great tribulation and the establishment, the second coming of Jesus Christ and the establishment of his kingdom on this earth. And they go to Psalm, one of the, they go to Psalm 91 to speak of these 144,000. So flip back to the Psalms with me. Speak of their plight during the great tribulation. And it almost reads like, you know, this could be about them. Now, I like this psalm on a personal basis, too, because as a believer, I, I live under the shadow of Christ's wings myself, and I believe he protects me from any harm that, 
that uh, would come to me that uh, he doesn't want to come to me. And so I, I'm not saying that we can't look at Psalm 91 uh, any other way but the Great Tribulation. But it does seem to apply to those 144,000 who are left here on this earth during the Great, great Tribulation because listen to what he says uh, in Psalms 91 verse 1. He says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, and Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the pestilence, or from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you shall take refuge. The truth should be your shield and buckler, and you shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor the error that flies by day nor the pestilence that walks in the darkness, nor the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only your eyes shall look and you shall see the reward of the wicked. That very well could be a picture of the protection that God gives those 144,000 during the uh, during the Great Tribulation. Now go with me back to Revelation chapter 9. And let's pick up in verse number 5. And they were not a given, they, and they were not these locusts, or these things like locusts, and they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Now that's interesting. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. So it doesn't destroy the grass. It doesn't destroy the trees. It doesn't destroy the plants. And it doesn't kill men immediately. They suffer, they're tormented for five months. I'm of the opinion, and again, you can't be dogmatic about this, but I'm of the opinion this is a chemical attack some type of chemical or biological attack. Nerve gas has much the same effect as uh, a scorpion sting does. If you are attacked with nerve gas, you're going to go into convulsions and you're going to have paralysis, just like you would if you were really affected by a scorpion sting. Anthrax. Anthrax doesn't kill immediately. It takes months to kill. So this could be an anthrax attack. And so this is, I think, kind of the way this war begins, and then he gives us further description of this war uh, in verses 6. Let's pick up in verse number 6, and we'll read through verse number 10. He says... In verse number 6, he says, In those days men will seek death. It's, they're going to have so much pain from this attack that they would rather die than be alive. Men and women and little children. And those, in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. Now, then he goes on, he says, The shape of the locust was like horses. Now, again, John's in the first century. He's seeing something that he's never seen before. And so there's that word like. He doesn't know what it is. It's not a horse. It's like a horse to him. So the, 
the most mighty thing, the uh, most mighty weapon of war or most mighty vehicle in war in his day was a horse. And so it, it was like horses prepared for battle. On their head were crowns of something like gold. See, he doesn't even know what that is. It wasn't gold, maybe brass. And their faces were like the faces of men. And they had hair like women's hair. And their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates. Now, here's where it looks like it's some type of tank or helicopter here. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots and many horses going into battle. Have you ever been around a helicopter, a cobra helicopter, and listened to that thing crank up? Sounds like, a that, like the sound of many horses running chariots running into battle. And if you've ever seen a cobra helicopter, it can fire from both ends. It can fire from the front, and it can fire from the tail. It says, and they had tails like scorpions, who, who, and there were stings in their tails. And the power was to hurt man for five months. And so this war goes on at this point for five months. And then in, in verse number 11, and they had a king over them. Now he's speaking now over the angels of the bottomless pit. Uh, that who have been released from the bottomless pit. He said, and they had the king over, the, over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew was Abaddon. And in the Greek, his name is Apollyon. And that, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, that name means destroyer. Uh, some people say Apollyon is Satan. Some people believe he is a high-ranking high ranking demon who is over this demonic army. And really, this, this army is not going to look like demons. This army is going to be people possessed by demons. But they're going to be led by this demon, this great demon named Apollyon. I personally think it's a demon. It could be Satan himself. It really doesn't matter. Satan's, Satan's leading the world at this point. I think Apollyon is leading his armies. All right, and then picking up in verse number 12. One woe is past. Behold, I mean, goodness, that's enough, isn't it? Hey, we're only getting started here. You're seeing the wrath of God poured out in a way on this world like it's never been poured out before. It is not in the nature of God to pour out wrath on his own people. And the reason he seals the 144,000 people, the Jews, is so there's some Jews left. That's one of the reasons. But those who believe the church is going to be here, you, you, you just can't imagine God allowing this kind of wrath on his people. Would you allow that kind of wrath on your children? No. And, and, and I believe people will be saved. A few will be saved during this time. And we're going to see, you know, that most aren't. But a few will be saved. But the church is out of here at this point. Thank God we're out of here. And he says, one woe is past. Hey, one woe. We've already had a star fall from heaven. We, we've got nerve gas, chemical gas being thrown all over the earth. And people are wanting to die and they can't die. And it's just getting started. And then he says, one woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. In verse number 13, then the sixth angel sounded and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which are before the God 
before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, I believe these are the four angels we saw in chapter 7 who were holding back. This number four represents the world. And they were holding back this great worldwide destruction. And so now they're being released. They're, they're, what, when they're released, what they're basically doing is allowing all evil to take over the earth. They're not holding it back anymore. And these demonic armies and the Antichrist are going to have their way on this earth. None of y'all are smiling today. What's wrong with y'all? It says, then the six angels sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now, they're not actually going to kill them. They're just going to be allowed to allow this war to take place because it, look, at, look at the army now. Now, the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million men, and I heard the number of them, 200 million men. That is a large army. Actually, and I, you know, I know everybody's saying, you know, if you listen to the prophecy gurus, they say China can field an army of 200 million, so this has to be China. I don't think so at all. I, I, the, the word for army there is, can be translated plural or singular. And I believe this is the total of all the soldiers in all the armies of the world. Now, that's nothing to sneeze at, 200 million men. But there's 200 million soldiers that go into this war. And then in verse number 17, it says, And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red and hyacinth blue and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire and smoke and brimstone. And so I think what he's referring to here are tanks or maybe submarines, some type of military weapon that's firing nuclear weapons at this point. And uh, the operators are the, the, I mean, the, the riders are the operators and the pilots who are, who are controlling the, these, these, these weapons of war. Now, listen to verse number 18. He says, he says, by these things, three plagues, by these three plagues, I mean, we've got the star that falls to heaven, we've got the chemical uh, uh, or biological war, we've got this nuclear war that breaks out. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. A third of mankind was killed. A third. I mean, we cringe at the thought of 2,300 people dying at 9-11 when those towers fell. But a third of mankind is going to be killed in this, just this part of the Great Tribulation. A third. The population, you know, approaching 10 billion in the next 20 years, it would be 3 billion people. Two and a half to 3 billion people are going to be killed during this war. 
by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which come out of their mouths. Now, you get a clue that these are missiles being fired. A really good clue right here. In fact, I can almost be dogmatic about this. Look at verse 19. It's a riddle here. You ought to be able to solve this riddle. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. And their tails are like serpents, having heads, having heads, and with their heads they do harm. Look at that description of a missile. I mean, it's the tail of the missile that powers the missile. You ever seen a missile being fired and you see that tail and what's it look like? It looks like a serpent. And the ultimate power in that missile, the power to do this destruction, is in the head, the nuclear warhead. So I have no doubt that's what we're seeing right here. And you have this nuclear war, this chemical war. You have this star that falls from heaven. A third of the people in the world are killed. At least two and a half to three billion people. Dead, dead and gone into the bottomless pit. What do you think should happen at that point? There should be a great revival. Your gospel we're going to see is written in the sky. And look, there's a way out, people. You can get saved. You can get out of all of this. And you would think that people would call upon the Lord and that they would repent. But they don't. Look at the last two verses of this chapter. He says, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons. Look, there are a lot of people in this world who either wittingly or unwittingly Worship demons. What we watch on TV is full of demonic activity. It's almost every show, other show now is about witchcraft or witches or, or warlords. Or, and the most popular movies are about witches and warlords. That's worshiping demons. That's giving tribute to demons, making demons good and God bad. What kind of sick world do we live in? But they don't repent of that. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works of the hands. They did not, that they should not worship demons of idols and gold and silver and brass and stone and wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. They remain stiff-necked to the very end. I would rather die than have this man, Jesus Christ, rule over me. Years ago when we were in the other building uh, over on College Saloon. There was a guy who pastored a little church there named Roger Price, a little Baptist church. Some of you who were over there remember the guy I'm talking about. And 
he had a church that supported him out of Ohio, and they sent like 100 people there to pass out flyers throughout that area in Lafayette. I mean, they passed out thousands of flyers inviting people to a dinner and Bible study. Thousands and thousands of flowers. They went, I, I mean, I gave him credit. I said, put us on there too, you know. And he wasn't going to do that. It was for his Baptist church, I was joking with him. But we passed out all of that flowers. They had their dinner. Not one person showed up. Not one person showed up. And he was really discouraged. The guy didn't last much longer. He left and, and went, went back up north. But, but he was really discouraged. And I said, Roger, you know, maybe, maybe God's going to, shake things up. We've got to hang in there. Maybe God's going to shake things up in this world and we're going to see a revival. And there's going to be this desire to want to study God's word and, and be serious about our relationship with God. Maybe that's going to happen. And he said, George, I don't think so. I said, Katrina, just a few years ago, hit New Orleans and almost wiped it out. And it's gone right back to what it used to be. Rita hit a few miles down west of here and didn't change anybody that tsunami wiped out a quarter of a million people that should have woke people up he said i don't think there's anything that will wake the people of this world up you know i i, I disagree with that a little bit but but there's a lot of truth in that i mean i don't know what it's going to take 9 11 didn't do it you know, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what it's going to take to shake this country. I mean, Donald Trump said the other night in his, his uh, State of the Union speech that, that uh, he, he, he wants to see this world, the United States, united again, but he, he's afraid it's going to take some tragic event for it to happen. But I don't even know if even then it can happen. Because people are so stiff-necked. They're so bound and determined to live immoral godless lives they're so bound and determined to be captains of their own souls that i don't know if there's any hope i mean when you go through all of that and you still the vast majority of the people are are just would rather die than than worship the lord i mean what's it gonna take now we talked about all of those people let's talk about ourselves a minute as we close here we can be pretty doggone stiff-necked, too. Not, uh, yeah, well, I was talking about you. I should have said y'all, but I was trying to do the preacher thing, you know. <laughs> no, we can be pretty stiff-necked, too. I mean, I wonder in what ways we're being stiff-necked right now. Well, we're preventing God from doing all he could do in our life to, to bless us in all the ways he wants to bless us because we're bound and determined to do things our way. We don't turn our necks and we don't listen to the Lord. Or we listen to the Lord and we don't do what the Lord tells us. And we're stiff-necked. I mean, I think it would be a good idea for every one of us to examine our lives and say, Lord, where, and ask the Lord, where am I being stiff-necked? I mean, we're not going to perish, but we want to be used by God. We want to be blessed by God. And I think a lot of the trials and tribulations that we go through as Christians is because we're stiff-necked. That's what happened to Israel. They were God's people, but they were stiff-necked. I mean, that's really, they, they're the ones who coined that phrase, or God coined it about them. And we're stiff-necked too. 
And I think it would be a good idea for all of us to ask the Lord, Lord, where, where can I loosen my neck up a little bit? Where can I be more obedient to you so that I can be blessed by you and close to you and do your will? That's what we want to do. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for what you teach us even in very difficult chapters, Lord. And Father, I am so grateful that through Jesus Christ, we've been saved from the horrors that we just read about in chapter 9 of Revelation. But Lord, as we just talked about, we too can be stiff-necked people. And I just ask that you show us those areas, Lord, in our lives where things that we can give over to you, Lord, that will allow you to work even a greater work in our souls and in our hearts and, Lord, and in our ministry. We just ask for you to take our lives and lead us, Lord, and, and help us be consecrated to you in these last days. We just ask for your grace in a special way. We ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name I pray. Amen. We're going to do the Lord's Supper. Holy 
Lord of heaven and earth. Hallelujah. To the Lord of heaven and earth. And hallelujah. To the Lord of heaven and earth, God of oneness beyond our galaxies, you are holy, holy, the universe declares your majesty, you are holy. Holy God of wonders beyond our galaxy, you are holy, holy, the universe declares your majesty, you are holy, you are holy. Lord of heaven and earth, Lord of heaven and stiff-necked people who are determined to do things their way. Not listening to God, but doing things their way. And going down their own path that they choose, not the path that God chooses for them. Stiff-necked. Stiff-necked. You know, stiff-necked isn't always a bad thing, though. You remember in the Gospels how Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem like flint, towards the, set his face toward the cross like flint. He was stiff-necked. He was bound and determined to do the will of God. Aren't you glad he did? Aren't you glad he went through with what God had called him to do? You know, we can learn from that. We don't want to be stiff-necked about the things of this world. We don't want to be stiff-necked in our rebellion to God. We want to be stiff-necked in doing the will of God and fulfilling his purposes for our lives. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Let's close in the, stand and close in the song. unfold before your throne the only place for those who know it's not for us it's all for you set your holy fire on the suffering that our worship burn for the world to see it's not for us all Not to us, but to your name be the glory. Not to us, but to your name be the glory. The earth is shaking, the mountain shouting, it's all for you. The waves are crashing, the sun is raining. All for you. The universe spinning, singing. It's all for you. The children dancing, dancing, dancing. It's all for you. It's all for you. Talk to us.